Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and thank you for being here. As I mentioned at the tail end of last week's episode with Corinne Bailey Ray, we're doing something a little bit different on the show through the rest of May. For the next four episodes, we'll be diving into the past, present, and future of Stone's Throw Records, the innovative, independent label behind acts like Jay Dilla, Damn Funk, A.O. Black, and so many more, a few of which we're going to talk to in the next few weeks. But first, we're kicking the series off with Chris Manack, better known by his stage name, Peanut Butter Wolf. Wolf founded Stone's Throw Records in 1996 with the intention to distribute music he loved. To this date, they have stuck by that idealistic mission statement. Shepherding diverse acts across different genres, Wolf is responsible for kickstarting the careers of Mad Lib slash Quasimodo, Kareem Riggins, Mayor Hawthorne, and beyond. In the beginning, though, he was about making his own music. Yeah, one of my favorites uh, for in a long time, Peanut Butter Wolf. Give some people some technology and uh, see what harm you can do. The larger Stone's Throw has become, 
the more Wolf has been asked to talk about himself and the company. This is what happens when a business is a success. However, by his own admission, Wolf is someone who doesn't particularly enjoy doing these interviews. This is understandable considering most conversations in the press hit the same surface notes again and again. They talk about his start in music in the Bay Area, the impetus for creating Stone's Throw, the difficulties of making and selling music in the 21st century. When you've been asked the same questions in the same way for two decades, I can imagine why one may not want to answer those questions. So we try to do something a little bit different here. Yes, we discuss growing up in San Jose and the early days of his label. But we also tap into the reasons why Chris got into music in the first place. The emotional weight of some of his partnerships with Mad Lib and the late Jay Dilla. Or how running a cool independent label is not always as fun and cool as we may think it is. There are memories and ideas Chris shares here that I have not, as a devout stone's thrower myself, heard elsewhere. So I really do hope you enjoy this conversation we had. But first, we start with the origins of that wonderfully strange stage name, Peanut Butter Wolf. So, let's start with the name. Stone's Throw? Yes, yeah, Stone's Throw. <laughs> I mean, the, the... Or Peanut Butter Wolf. Yeah, that one. The legend is, or rather the Wikipedia legend, and it, it's not that yeah. grand, but it, it came from a girlfriend's younger brother. That's right. Is that actually true? So I don't have to answer that one. <laughs> Next. Yeah, that... Um, yeah, I mean, base. I mean, kind of. Well, I'll do like the medium version. I won't do the long, long version. But sure. basically, um, I was playing Candyland with my ex girlfriend and her little brother. He was like six years old. And you were how old then? Uh, I was like nineteen, maybe or eighteen. And then we, her and I, like were teasing him. We turned the lights off, and he said, "Turn the lights on. The peanut butter wolf's gonna get me." And he was real serious, and we thought it was funny, but. Um, I told that well actually then I joined a band with some of my friends and the whole band was kind of just making up the songs as you go along and recording it and we would always sing about the peanut butter wolf like all of the songs were about the peanut butter wolf hmm. and then I said it was going to be a medium version it's a long version so and then from there um I was showing those songs to Charisma, who was a rapper I was working with at the time, and he said, you should change your DJ name to Peanut Butter Wolf, and I took him up on it. It stuck. Yes, for many years. That was like in the late 80s. So. Do you wish that you chose something else? I mean, it works better when you're 19 than 47, but it's fine. <laughs> I remember this comedian girl was on on Twitter she went to she got in some Twitter war with me making fun of like DJ's names or something like that and um there was yeah. a comedian who spent her time on Twitter <laughs> well Make- she just made one joke and then a lot of people who know who knew me and my music they came to my rescue and were like kind of giving her a hard time and then yeah it turned into this thing but it kind of seems like low hanging fruit it was fun to make fun of DJ names I mean, I I do all the time too, so I get it. I I I make fun of everybody and myself. I think your name is is fairly original. Like I think if you if if people had to guess what your name was going to be, it would take them ten thousand tries. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that that I have going for it. Like, um, yeah. 
Also, it should be noted that you were there fairly early in this game. Well, that's the thing is there's so many like yeah, DJ names like that and that are like I don't know, quirky or whatever and at the time it was uh, it was a little bold, more bold to do it. Now it's like if I came up with a name now, I wouldn't take that one, I guess. Do you think you get to be more bold when there's like not a template for for something? You started out before there was yeah, before like the the, the now everyone is a DJ. Yeah, and then, yeah, I mean, if I'm on an airplane, I, I, if someone asks me what I do, I never tell them I'm a DJ because that's like everybody's a DJ. What do you say? Um, it depends. I mean, I, I usually do say I'm in the music industry, though, but I don't know. I, I usually lie, I guess. You're a fairly private person. I mean, not with people who know me. Mm. Yeah, that that's what I've heard. That's yeah. what J. Rock said. As well. Oh yeah, he's like he's not private. Yeah, he said. With your friends, you goof around a lot. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I guess like with social networks, I try to stay more quiet these days. I just, um, I don't know. Just it gets to be too much with some people. Mm. You grew up in Santa Cruz? I or grew San up Jose? in San Jose. Yeah, San right, Jose. Next to, right next to Santa Cruz. And and what was that like? I mean, I, I'm fairly unfamiliar with... I know. I kind of feel like I am with... I'm unfamiliar with San Jose now, but it was... Um, yeah, this was in the 70s and 80s, and it was really like all the technology, computer jobs, I guess, were happening there. You know, my dad moved there for that. And um, I mean, my dad always wanted me to go into that industry and stuff, but I was like super bored with it. I, I couldn't do it. Were you into music right away as a kid? Were I was always really into it, yeah. And. Um, I mean, buying records at a real early age, like nine years old, ten years old, I was buying records every week and, um, you know, saving my lunch money and buying 45s. And then they told me when I was old enough to work, I would they would hire me, and they did. They hired me when I was like 17 or something. What was that first record that you were like, oh, wow, this is, music is not just things that come through the radio, it's art. Because for me, it was definitely like songs in the key of life. Oh well, wow. my my dad showed that to me, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, this is not. This I mean, is not Stevie, normal. you can't go wrong. Yeah, um, I mean, when you say that, I'm just remembering like I used to when I was watching cartoons. What's going on by Marvin Gaye used to come on, right? Right before there was like a PSA for like I don't know if it was like an anti-war statement or something in in Vietnam. I forget what the PSA was, but. That song, I just, it really touched me, like, as, as a kid, and, you know, I think that was one of them. You see, war is not the answer, for only love can comprehend. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Pick it and pick it side. Punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Can you imagine a song that good being on the like before an ad now or like as an ad yeah. in 2017? Yeah Now we have like Justin Timberlake songs playing on ads Exactly But I mean I guess with that song like 
I mean, I've heard it so many times now that I'm almost desensitized to it, but it, it is like, you know, a beautiful song. And Marvin Gaye just has so much work that is important to me personally. When you saw or listened to Marvin Gaye, was there, did you have any thought like, oh, I want to make something like that? Not at that age. I mean, that's when I was like three or four years old, I think, but like... That would have been pretty young to have those thoughts. Yeah, but I mean, like as early as like, being eight or nine or no probably like when i was six or seven like um i had a teacher named mr bowman and he showed us in in our elementary school every friday he would play us records and that's how i learned about a lot of soul and funk and disco was through him and he, then, so this was a teacher in grade school yeah and what what class was this well i mean it was like homeroom or something no because it was like second or third grade it was really yeah, it was just, you know, when teacher teaches all the subjects, I guess. Mm. But he, on Friday, he would have records and headphones for everybody and stuff. So that was our music day. That's kind of an incredible, I can't imagine. That. It was awesome. I mean, I learned I learned more from that teacher just by him showing me that music. I mean, and I've always, I've been trying to hunt him down ever since, but like, he got in a car accident while we were students, and they told us that he was okay in the car accident, but that he wouldn't be coming back that year. And to this day, I'm always wondering if he passed away in the car accident. Mm. And you've tried to find him. Yeah, it was at a, the school Berryessa in San Jose, and yeah, that yeah, it didn't work out to find him. But when you grew up and became, you know, seventh, eighth grade, early high school, were you with your friends like the guy who was the fountain of knowledge when it came to music i mean i i will brag that that that's what i was known as yeah i mean i even yeah i guess i i would make the mixtapes where you're not really mixing just just a just a compilation just recording different songs from different albums and people would always come to me for the jams quote unquote mm -hmm. like in those years and then would I got you my... sell them or give them away for free no i never sold anything and then like talking to egyptian lover he did the same thing and he made good money doing it and i'm like wow i never really thought of it as a money thing back then like, i think j-rock sold some too yeah i guess they just valued themselves more like i um i was always shy so i'd use that to like get popularity with people or you know get get friends or whatever did you get a girlfriend that way um no i never did i i went all through school without a girlfriend my first girlfriend was like out of like when i was graduated from high school i was like yeah the Candyland girl yeah that was my yeah that was it mm. she was like the first yeah in high school were you making music at all or was it just purely compilation in high school it was no so by the age of 14 i got my first mixer and turntables and um i was actually doing mixes and what and year is this, this that was 84 or 85 mm -hmm. yeah and then i think that's why i got bad grades in high school i was just instead of doing my homework i was always making mixtapes for people and i would just have my headphones on so my mom wouldn't really know that i was doing that but oh so they didn't know to the extent no i mean she saw when my grades came back as like c's instead of a's but you know my dad always got really he had i think he had like several master's degrees and you know it was like education was really important for him he actually died three years ago um sunday like yeah a couple of days ago so it's all kind of mm. uh in my mind right now well i'm sorry to hear that yeah but he um 
Yeah, he was always, he took education really seriously. And I, I think, like, for me, like, in high school, my grades, I, it was just that I, I couldn't, I mean, I think I have the ADHD thing that, you know, everybody has nowadays, but I feel like I had it back then even. So after high school, what happens? After high school, well, so in high school I was doing the mixtapes, and I actually started working with rappers too. And I remember I did a talent show with um, this other DJ producer, and he had his his rapper that he was working with. And I remember we were on the school bus, and he was like, one day we're all going to be famous, and instead of being on a school bus, we're going to be on a tour bus. And then he moved to New York, and then he kind of made it like he had this group called twin hype and this rapper king son and he was like producing these records that that were on bet and on mtv yo mtv raps and stuff and and i was like wow i can't believe like he actually (laughs) did it he moved to new york where hip-hop is from and you know is making a contribution and that really made me feel like if he could do it i could do it his name's king shamik and you know we're still friends but by college years i I mean, I had been making beats all you know all through high school, and then in college, I actually borrowed five hundred dollars from my dad and went into business with a couple other people and put out my first record, and that was in nineteen ninety. So your dad was supportive. Yeah, he was, and he wasn't. He was always telling me, "You'll never make it in music. There's only one Michael Jackson. There's only one MC Hammer." And and I said, "Well, I don't want to be MC Hammer or Michael Jackson." There's like, you know. But um, there's an in between. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, basically. Even though he discouraged me from going into music, he he lent me the money. Still it, gave you five hundred. Yeah, when it came down to it, yeah. Right. What was the music rap scene, R and B stuff at that time that you were entering? You were like twenty years old. I was twenty years old. This, this is nineteen ninety. Okay, nineteen ninety. So, so it was really like Public Enemy. Um, I was really into Brand Nubian, Tribe Called Quest, um, De La Soul, all that kind of stuff. P-Rock. Were people into it out here on the West Coast? They were, but not as much. And uh, you know, they they were into the the bigger names, the ones I was mentioning right now. But they weren't into like Lakim Shabazz or like Chill Rob G or you know some of the underground ones that I was into and. Um, yeah, the record we put out flopped, and now it's like one of those records on Discogs that it's it, it goes for good money, and that makes me feel good. But <laughs> um, at the time, yeah, we 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 couldn't we couldn't give them away to people; they didn't want it. When did you first feel that your project was um, well received or like validated by external forces? I think it was working with Charisma and. At that point, like he had all the confidence. I was always that guy. I don't know. It was weird though, because I, I half of me was like, "It's never going to happen." But then, I I kept doing it, so I I must have thought it would. You know, why didn't you think it was going to happen? I think it was because I was programmed by so many people uh, as a kid and as a teenager that you shouldn't be doing music. My mom's dad was uh, a bass player, and he was he was like a jazz player in in boston and played with uh like dizzy gillespie and a lot of a lot of the greats but he never really made it and so he was a refrigerator mover by day and my mom grew up dirt poor and she's like you know i don't i don't want to see you struggle the way that my family did as a as a kid you know i think you should do something else Mm. the stuff with charisma you have you have music that you guys created 
pre-Stone's Throw. Yeah. I mean, not, yeah, all of it. So I started Stone's Throw in 96, and Charisma passed away in 1993. It's not my birthday and I'm still pulling cards. cards. Attention out to the ladies and gentlemen who will survive when I perform a kick it live. Cause with a threshold, 56, I came to brawl. I'm taking whack MCs, Puma suits and all. Seven mics, seven rhymes, seven styles. You're not fat, it's like you ran seven miles. I collect, I'm still the end. I left my rhymes in the shoebox, they so rough, they turn to Timberlands. Just like a test. It's charisma, the fly fellow. Just like a test. Butter, that's my mellow. Just like a dad, you know what's Robin Debonair. Just like a dad, the flyest kids of the year. So we were signed to a major label, and then they basically shelved our project. What was their explanation? That's you know, after we signed with them, I mean, there was the honeymoon phase, but basically, this group Digital Underground, they were listening to our demo all the time. They they basically brought our demo to the label they were on, and then the the guy from the label brought it to the president, and the president had said no to Cypress Hill and to Naughty by Nature, and both of those groups went platinum. So then when he brought our demo, they're like, okay, we're gonna listen this time, and so that's how we got signed. <laughs> but then you guys were not Naughty by Nature or Cypress Hill. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing was is. What uh, looking back, I I think they kind of signed us for our look and being like, you know, the pretty boys or whatever. Like charisma looked like uh, Fresh Prince, and then people said I looked like the guy from Nine Hundred Two and Oh. So and they were like <laughs> trying to make us like a boy band almost, you know. Right. And that's it was this was Walt Disney Records, like Hollywood Records. They were known for breaking that kind of stuff. It's good because when I think of you, I think Nine Hundred Two One Oh. Chris fits right in. There you go. There you are. It's like antithetical <laughs> well, to, was... your, to your worldview. <laughs> yeah. Did that combo work out for you? It did, but then we were kind of, I think we we were like overconfident almost. And I think like the way we treated that label, the label that we signed with wasn't really the one that we wanted to sign with originally because they hadn't had any successes. And like we wanted to be on a, the same label that one of our heroes was on. Mm. So See, we went into it with a bad attitude. Right. And we were like, we're doing them a favor. Like, they <laughs> suck. They don't even understand what we're doing. And, like, and this is your first joint, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So, what I did, mean... What did they make of your arrogance? I mean, I think it, our arrogance was more... We, I don't think we showed it to them that much. I mean, I remember actually Charisma, when we met the president of Disney, Charisma had his hand in his pants, and then he pulled it out and shook the guy's hand, I think, just to see if the guy would actually do it, and the guy did, but that was like an example of our arrogance, I guess. Did the Disney guy say anything? <laughs> no. He he saw, he he saw Charisma his... have his hand in his pants. Yeah. He saw Charisma remove the hand from his pants, shook his hand, and he said he didn't mm. even flinch. No. That was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bold move. So, that was us. Mm. Were you as bold as he was? He brought it out in me. I think, like, 
I always had. I mean, I, yeah, like when the Beastie Boys came out, I was talking about them earlier. Like they had a their t shirt said "Get off my dick" on the back, and then I would wear that to school, and I got expelled for that. But hmm. normally, I was um, pretty shy, I guess. So let's go to ninety six. Yeah, let's fast forward. I guess. Huh? Well, we were in ninety. Charisma died in ninety three. He passed in ninety three. Yeah, and he was twenty years old. Yeah, and. What happens in those three years between 93 and 96? Those three years, I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do. I mean, you know, up until that time, I always wanted to be in a group with him and be like an artist. And then after he passed, I didn't want to be in a group with anybody else. And so... Was it disorienting to have like your best friend die? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, the music, I wasn't even worried about the music right? as much as just, yeah, losing my friend and, like, trying to figure that out, I just guess. Just, like, day to day life. Yeah, I was just in a daze for a while, and then eventually I was trying to figure out, I guess I started making music on my own, like, just instrumentals and putting out, I put out a record called Peanut Butter Breaks in 1994, which was all instrumentals, and then I started working with other people, just recording songs, but I told myself I was never going to be on stage with somebody and be a part of a group like that. And um, But then by 96, I, I had known so many artists in the Bay Area that I wanted to release albums from, so then that's why I started the label. Are you living in San Jose at this point or San Francisco? So I was in San Jose when Charisma passed away, and then I moved to San Mateo to take a job at a record distributor, which was right by the San Francisco airport. And mm. at that point, that's when I started Stone's Throws. I, I learned the industry a little bit from being at the distributor, and I, I noticed like the labels that I was working with, I felt like I could probably do it as good as, if not better. So, mm. Did you get firsthand experience of what people do to artists early on i mean i got all different ones for when i was with hollywood basics the the hollywood records the disney thing uh you know we signed a deal for hundreds of thousands of dollars and we never really saw that like it it all got frozen up like you know they were like well there's a stipulation that you have to sign finish the album first and then we were trying to finish the album they were like stalling us from going in the studio, like, and before we were signed, we were able to go to whatever studio we wanted to. Then after we were signed, we had to go to the studio they wanted. It was $100 an hour instead of $15 an hour or $20 an hour. And um, so all that kind of stuff, all the stalling and not getting the money, that that was stressful. And then at the distributor, yeah, it was kind of, I, I saw that as well where I was like, I, I I guess talking to you, I'm like kind of realizing in my head maybe it was with both of those situations, all these these things were out of my control. And then with Stone's Throw, I actually have a lot more control with it now. This was kind of my point. I yeah, but I mean like even with Stone's Throw, like I, we still have to collect from distributors. We don't, you know. and Sure. Like when, when all the record stores closed down, like the towers and all those, like 10 years ago, we almost closed our doors and a lot of labels had to because they just simply weren't getting paid. Mm. I mean, it's an imperfect apparatus. Yeah. But it does seem like your knowledge of the foundation of this industry informed how you created Stone's Throw in 96. I mean, you were also a kid then. How old were you? 
Yeah, I was like 26, yeah. 26. Was it exciting in the early days? It was. I mean, even just to get wax with, you know, with your name on it and with people that you believed in or like, I guess, like one of the first singles I put out, like DJ Premier played it on the radio in New York and that was those were the kind of things that I was doing it for. How incredible was that? I mean, at the, yeah, in those, at that time, it was great. So in those mid-90s, was the label, like, was it stable? Was it a business that made money? It was because it was really only me. It wasn't, I didn't have a staff or anything, so the, the overhead was so low, you mm. know. It was really easy. How did you manage that work-wise? Um, it wasn't as much work because I didn't have as many artists under me, and it was they basically just turned the music in, and I would put it out. You know, it was vinyl only in the early days. We didn't have CDs, right. and it was before iTunes had started. So the whole digital. I mean, you know, of course, no streaming, but um, yeah, it was a lot less complicated in those days. Mm. Were you cautious about who you put on the label and who you didn't? Uh, I was cautious, I mean, absolutely, from a creative standpoint. And then I guess even, like, relationship-wise, if somebody, if I wasn't vibing with somebody or, you know, then I just, I didn't want to put my effort into Mm. trying to promote them and stuff. The roster that I had in the early years, there were, like, three or four rappers that I really was into, and I never had contracts with anybody. It was like, well, if I don't want to hold anybody to a contract, I only want people to work with me who want to work with me. Right. So it was always like that handshake type stuff. And then... Yeah, creatively, what was the sound that you were going for? I think it was just kind of... In the mid-90s, there was this like... um, You know, like the whole whole Bad Boy, Diddy, like... Hype Williams, like real big budget videos and all that stuff. Like there was this counterculture to that with all the indie labels like Bob Ito had a record label called Fondalum which was also like just kind of bringing it back to like just the I mean even like Wu-Tang you know when they came out they came out on their own label Wu-Tang Records and they just took the industry by storm just creating raw music and not worrying about having R&B singers on the hooks or anything like that you know Mm. and so Stone's Throw was kind of born out of that movement. I mean, DITC, like Showbiz and AG and all those artists, like we we looked up to a lot of them. And, you know, they weren't necessarily selling huge numbers, but they were making the music where every time they came out with with something new, we would study it and, you know, take notes. But I guess my point was that I had like three or four rappers when I started the label that I put out singles with, and I had the intention of putting out albums with them as well. And then I went to a music studio from Automator, who was doing this Dr. Octagon album at the time. And when he heard all those guys, he basically signed them all to his label. And from that... He took them from you? Yes, he took them from me. And from that, I, I like realized how important contracts are and stuff if you're going to invest your time and you know money and resources and stuff then there has to be it has to be more than just like a handshake did you confront this guy who took your artist you know i kind of blocked that whole scenario i don't remember if i did i'm sure i did but yeah you block it out now yeah i just yeah i don't really remember like what 
how how that all panned out. Mm. I think maybe I just stopped talking to him. And what about the artists? I mean, those people were your friends. Yeah, I, and I stopped talking to them. But I mean, some of them like I'm friendly with all of them now. That's so long ago. And you know, they were they were doing what was um, the best opportunity for them at the time. Right. It's not really a personal thing. Yeah. It seems it seems a little bit personal. It is and it isn't. I mean, do you have to reconcile with that often in this industry? I mean, I was having a talk with Dame Funk today. He was telling me about some people that he's, you know, helped out that he hasn't heard from that much, and he's just trying to figure out why it's like that. And that happens with me a lot. Like, you extend yourself for certain people, and then you feel like it's not reciprocated or. Mm. Does that happen often in your career? Um, and I feel like you're my therapist right now. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Um. It. Yeah. It, it happens a lot in the in in our career. It's just there. There's just not that much stability. Period. You know. Right. Whether you're on the label end or the or whether you're an artist or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't want to be your therapist. Though no, it is, no, no. It, it is interesting. To think about why someone or a series of people would do that to you, because to me you seem well. I hadn't fairly... had any success yet, right? And then the the Doctor Octagon record was a big success. That I understand. That was bigger than anybody. Than that move I, I get. With. I'm talking about down the line as as the label grew uh, in the late '90s. Yeah, you extended yourself for artists that were predominantly unknown, right? I mean, you were finding these people. Well, that was, yeah, that was the early years of Stonestone. That was like 97, 98, yeah. Was there an artist there early on that did particularly well? No. Oh, for Stone's Throw? Yeah. Um, At the time, Rasco was like one of the ones that was doing very well. And then he was interested in, um, he got got a deal with Universal for Europe, and then, but that was through Stone's Throw, so... We worked something out with Universal where he was able to put out his stuff with them, you know. Yo, it's Flipside and Rasco here to let them know. If niggas don't cooperate, gotta let them go. Get in the race and stop running at a snail's pace. And sour milk has left my mouth with a bit of taste. They shot calling blackball until the last sex. No other choice but to cut these niggas' last check. Give me respect, cause I've been coming up these last years. The only car on the road flossing nine years. Cause I arrive in overdrive, set the ripping live. And I'll be ripping this shit when I'm 55. Dead and stinking, ain't Lincoln, nigga, what you thinking? You better to smoke another blunt and continue drinking a cloudy brain train tracks but there's no train and now you watch me skyrocket in my own plane never the same and nobody else can do it better three to the third is the word got the triple header so you better get your ass a sweater breaking these fools down to the last letter whatever that you clowns want to do make sure that you got the super dope crew the unassisted is the unassisted Rass goes on the mic is the unassisted you blacklisted Joe is the unassisted. Rascals on the mic is the unassisted. I mean, Madlib is part of the equation at this point, right? Because I remember J Rock telling me you guys would all share tapes with each other in in the mid to late nineties. Yeah, Madlib. I heard a Loop Pack twelve inch EP. Loop Pack was the group that he was in hmm. at the time, and. I took a thousand copies of that for the record distributor I worked at. This was like ninety five, ninety six, and then 
Um, it had to have been 96 because I had already put out a few records and I, I was telling them about my label and they were interested in working with me. And it, that was an awkward situation because Mad Lib's dad was the head of the label, but he gave them he his was the blessing. Head of, he was the head of what label? The label that put out the Lupax um, EP that I purchased for the distributor I worked at. Right. But I met with Mad Lib and his dad and... What did his dad say? Oh, his dad was like acting as their manager as well. So he saw that as an opportunity. He talked to the guys; they all wanted to do it, and he was he was totally cool about everything. Mm. So I dealt with his dad mainly in the early years. But yeah, I mean, Madlib. I guess I think the first thing with him might have been like '98. Mm-hmm. So that was only two years into the label. Did you immediately knew he had something? Oh, when I heard his stuff, that that changed my life. I mean, that really like made me stop making music i was just like i i knew that my music wasn't as good as his and I, it was like okay am i going to spend my time making music that's almost as good as him or am i gonna mm. or should i like promote his music and that i i was more passionate about his music than my own There's no surprise when I enter because y'all MCs know the real. I peel your back when I counter react and stays to bust the skill and keep it west. I'm all right through your crew with your test. Leave my rappers in your grill and grave my name through your chest. There's no escape and I suggest you'll give this rap thing a rest. Or you'll get late to rest, then I'll wake you up like zest. I progress methods metallic, leave your whole set unbalanced. Damage every challenge, cause my rhymes be fully automatic every day, all day. Represent the 805 of incivility upon the microphone to get mine. Niggas recline and have a seat because my rhymes be too deep. Never sleep upon my raps, cause all rap rhymes so cheap. You know the sound with the mysterious metaphor lays it down. I have your crew locked down. Bust the flow system, pound for every round. I let off, be setting it off nonstop. Do what I always on mine, representing the ox. This is exactly what J Rock said, by the way. About his, him yeah, and he was or like about a, me. <laughs> about, he was like, Chris. Like, was Wolf's make, music was all right. It was ma- He was making subpar stuff. He had to stop <laughs> once a year. No, he was talking about himself. I mean, yeah. He heard Mad Lib stuff and he was like, oh my God. Yeah. What the fuck is this? I know. How do I even compete? This is like Jordan playing against high school players, you know? Yeah. It was crazy. That's kind of an interesting. I mean, he also was talking about being in the room while Mad Lib would show him some stuff. Yeah. Were you there for some of that? Oh, yeah. Well, Mad Lib used to live with me. So, like, right. I mean, I was there we for all, you all of that. You guys all lived. Here in, yeah, in, in East in LA. Washington, yeah. 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 You guys were roommates. Yeah. When was that? That was well, so I moved to LA in two thousand one and then I brought Madlib with me. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, so that was two thousand one. What was that house like? It was awesome. I mean Madlib was just learning how to play drums at that time. He you know, I'd got him a drum set and I would always wake up to hearing hearing him drum along with jazz records but it wasn't like hard you know harsh drumming it was like kind of like ride cymbals mm. and stuff and it was just it kind of blended in with the music and it was just like a, a natural alarm clock to be waking up to this mm-hmm. brazilian music and jazz music with madlib so you weren't he wasn't like that roommate that plays music and you're like oh god i can't can't believe he's playing this again i'm so tired of this no you know what's funny is he used to tell me about when he had a roommate that was working on a certain song over and over again, and he had to hear that song over and over, and Madlib never works that way. He spends five minutes on a song, and then that's it. He never goes back to it. He just goes on to the next song. What? 
Always. He's so quick with everything. How's that possible? He like he does one take, he like Clint Eastwood's it? Well, I'm talking about like making beats and stuff, but even with the live, yeah, he, he doesn't he didn't he wasn't really I guess for the yesterday's new quintet stuff, he wasn't yeah, he wasn't spending that much time on songs. Do you work that fast? When I was making music, I mean that was years ago, but it wasn't it wasn't that fast, no. Mm. It took it would take me longer. So early two thousands of Stones Throw. What's happening here? You guys are in L.A. proper now. You yeah. Al- you always were in L.A. You were in Bay and L.A. Yeah, San Francisco the first four years. Mm-hmm. And L.A. ever since. I guess, yeah, L.A. was 2001. Mm-hmm. Were people paying attention to you here in, in, in the city? They were. And, you know, a lot of it was thanks to the Beat Junkies. You know, I mean, Rhett Maddock and J-Rock and Mr. Chalk. Those guys, they were all supportive, and they had like radio shows on, on the commercial radio station. It was like a mixed show at night, right. but it was still, you know, it still got out to a lot of people. And then there was a record store called Fat Beats that was like the hip hop store that was started in New York, and they they had one in L.A. So that really helped the community. And then there were just certain nightclubs that really supported the music that I was into at the time that you couldn't really find those clubs in San Francisco as much. What was the roster like in the early 2000s? Like 2000 to 2003, who was on Stones Throw? Um, I mean, the roster, there was a lot of Mad Lib. You know, like he Lib. was working with a lot of different people. He was working... So Loop Pack was the group I was telling you about, but with them, there was... That was mainly him and a rapper Wild Child... Mm-hmm. And, a, and a DJ, DJ Roms. But then on that album, there were a lot of guest artists on it that were part of their crew. They were, all came from Oxnard, California, which is an hour north of here in a car. And so a lot of those artists that were on that album, I put out albums with, like M.E.D., uh, Dudley Perkins, Kazi. We didn't do a whole album, but we did some stuff with him. So there were artists like that. There was... Breakastra was kind of like a, a live funk group, I remember. Questlove was a very early supporter of them. But a lot of it was Mad Lib, and, and by those years, we started working with Dilla as well, I guess. Mm. You've been asked to talk about him a lot. Um, yeah, I have. Not not so much anymore. I think I don't think people even really like think of me and him in the same sense, like we know each other to the point that we did, you know? Really? I don't know. Maybe I. To, that's my perception, my self perception. I guess. But. I assumed you guys knew each other very well. No, we did, but I, I'm not really. I guess like I was always asked to to DJ the the tributes for him like early on, and I didn't. I always felt weird about doing that, but and then I just feel like now, like I don't know. I don't know what I'm getting at, but yeah, Jay Dilla. When did you meet him? Um, you know I've. Physically met him in the late 90s, early 2000s, I don't remember. It was in L.A. They had a Slum Village show. But I, I was talking to him on the phone like since like 97, 96. And I, I met him through House Shoes. Like House Shoes, when I was first putting out Loop Pack and Quasimodo, House Shoes was like, you got to hear my man J.D. He's got tracks. He's on the same level as y'all. And, um, you know, he was just always like, big up in him he would play him over the phone he'd play full songs for me over the phone and 
you know. How do they sound over the phone? I mean, they sounded great, but I don't. I never like to hear songs over the phone, so I don't. I don't. I I think I was like waiting to to like get the tape or something, you know, rather than try to hear it over the phone. Mm. Um, but his passion for JD was kind of like how I remembered mine to be about Madlib and right. And then you know, Q-Tip discovered JD and started. How did that happen, by the way? Um, I don't know. I think. Yeah, I'm not sure how that started, but he must have been in Detroit for a show or something. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know how he found out about him, but then he started working with them, and you know, he hooked him up with doing Far Side beats and um, Busta Rhymes and just a lot of different people, you know. Mm-hmm. But in those days, like Q-Tip would get him a lot of remix gigs for major labels, and he would do him on spec, and then the label would say no because he wasn't a big enough name yet. So he was sitting on like remixes of D'Angelo and Busta and a bunch of different people. And then House Shoes came up to me since I was working at the record distributor, and he's like, "Let's put out an album of this." And you know, me, you, and JD like together, and I did, and we we sold them exclusively in Japan. Sitting on Chrome. But we we did a thousand copies and we sold them only in Japan. We didn't want to deal with selling it in the U.S. because the the labels, you know, it had the labels artists on on the track still. Mm-hmm. But JD, you know, he was part of it, and none of the artists came after us or were upset. They were all like supportive of it. Yeah, well, because artists liked JD. They loved JD. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of any artists that would be like, "Oh, why'd you do that, JD?" Mm. So, but that was yeah, that was the mid to late nineties, and then I came to find out that he was really into Loop Pack, and he was. Um, a friend of mine that was a writer for Rolling Stone interviewed D'Angelo and asked D'Angelo, what's your favorite album of the year? And he said, Loop Pack, and I love Mad Lib. And then, um, this is the early 2000s. This is like, that was like 98, 99 so around. Right around Voodoo. Yeah, it was probably that, that era. Post yeah. Brown Sugar. Yeah. So he, and then he said, oh yeah, I found out about him through JD. So then we, we kind of put two and two together that JD was playing Mad Lib's music for a lot of the artists he was working with. And that kind of helped, you know, get us out there or whatever. I mean, that whole thing in, that was happening in New York um, from like 98 to 2002, they called themselves, what, the Soul Aquarians? Yeah, the Soul Aquarians, yeah. And you had Badu and you had... D'Angelo and you had Common and Tip and Questlove, I think. Questlove. I think Questlove probably put it together. Yeah. What what were you were you I mean were you tangentially a part of that? No, I mean I was I mean viewed it from afar. Yeah, I mean I, I knew 
not all those artists, but I, I knew Questlove at that point. I would go record shopping with them and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, JD, I mean, he, he loved Mad Lib. And when he was living in Detroit, you know, I was talking to him. And I think when we first started working with him, he still was living in Detroit. And then one day he called me and he's all, you're not going to believe this, but I'm moving to LA. And I'm like, no, get the, you know. <laughs> And he was like, "No, I'm serious." He said, "I'm I'm actually working on a, a movie with Spike Lee, and then I'm going to be living with Common. Common's like, kind of taking me in, you know, to be his roommate." Hmm. And that's what happened. I mean, Common, what was the movie? I don't think it ever happened. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I well, like I, I, I know, know that. that JD didn't end up scoring it. I don't know where that, yeah, hmm. where that went wrong or whatever. But, um, but Common, yeah, he was Common's roommate and. That's another strange. That's like you and Madlib roommates, <laughs> like, like the, 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 just imagining what like a Saturday night looked like. Yeah, at Common and Dillo's house. Yeah, although their house was very clean and ours was very dirty. Mm. But you would go over there. Yeah, yeah. Like I guess I kind of got to know Common through Dillo and stuff too, back in those days. Mm. What did it feel like back then? I mean, that that was before Dillo became. I mean, he, he was, was a just, hero still to us. Like, he was, like, one of those living legends, you know, before he passed away. So, but, I mean... But he was just your friend. I don't... Did you mean, did you treat him as, like, a living legend? No, I... Yeah, I treated him as a legend and Mad Lib. I mean, those guys, like, you know, I didn't treat them differently to their faces, but, like, behind their back, I was like, oh, man, these guys are, like, uh, you know, I'm afraid to talk to them even, but... <laughs> But that's the thing is everyone acted that way around them and it just made them like shut off from people even more. I think I'm I'm kind of guessing maybe that's how Sly was in the 70s. Like, you know, people worshipped him so hard. He's probably just like, get me away from everybody. Mm -hmm. Would he talk to you about that? Madlib? Dilla. Oh, Dilla? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, he teased. He would make fun of people about like... The whole geek down thing is like what he would say, like, you know, if someone's acting too much like a nerd in front of them, like, you need to geek down. And I remember we were in New York and we had a gig and then somebody else that used to make beats was hanging out with us and like asked Dilla if he could go to his hotel room afterwards and was playing beats for Dilla all night. And Dilla was just like really nice about it. And But then like deep down inside, he was like, get me out of this situation, you know. That is odd. So I, that's with that being said, that's why I never really would call Dilla. I I just didn't want to be that person to bug him. But whenever he called me, and he would, if he would just say, "Hey, what are you, what are you doing today? Let's go record shopping," and I'd be like, "Oh yeah, I, I'm. I happen to not be doing anything today, but really, would I would. Yeah, would, I would, would have to cancel play? everything. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was true. Yeah. So he would call you. He'd be like, "Hey, let's yeah. go. Let's go record." Yeah, let's go record shopping. And what were those memories? I mean, I, that's fascinating to me. It was cool. I mean, we would go to Rockaway, and he bought a lot of 45s there. Like, you know, he knew that we were into 45s a lot. Like, at that point, like, when we were DJing, I would bring 45s on the road because they were lighter to carry than albums. And so I, mm -hmm. I got really into digging for 45s and, and DJing with them. And... I, I feel like with Donuts, like, he's purposely sampled from 45s and, like, 
kind of presented that to me because he knew I was into that. But. It's a soul heavy sampling. It was, yeah. But I mean, the the forty fives I was playing as a DJ were kind of different than what he sampled in that. But I mean, a lot of, I mean, he was sampling from kind of major artists that, yeah, that you would be surprised that hadn't been sampled from or those songs hadn't been sampled from yet. And you know, because you There's when like you Dion think Dion Warwick in there, and yeah. So when you think of sampling. I mean, I I just feel like most of the good stuff was already gone by the early 2000s. And he kind of proved at that point, like, there's still stuff out there that even from major artists. Dig deep. Yeah. What do you make and of... And dig shallow. Dig shallow and dig deep. Just, I mean, shallow meaning, like, these are records that anybody can get, you know? Mm. And he still flipped it and made it sound like something new. What do you make of the fact that Donuts is now essentially, um, okay, so, you know, when people get into jazz, people are like, okay, listen to Kind of Blue. Right. When people say, you want to hear hip-hop instrumentals, or you want to even get the origins of hip-hop, people say, go listen to Donuts. Mm -hmm. It's become this sort of iconic, basic, rudimentary thing you go listen to if you want to know the ABCs of, of, of... hip-hop instrumentals i mean i felt that it was like that when the first time i heard it and i was like how how can i get this record for stone's throw like he just we were in the car and he was just playing it for me and at the time like he was getting big money for just one beat just giving them to different artists on major labels so i was just like well what if we just put that out on stone's throw and then if any rapper wants to rap over the beats you can still sell them to the to them and you know get double money that way or whatever so mm. and he was cool with it he didn't he i don't i mean yeah there was no there was no pushback or anything it was just like yeah that's a good idea let's do this well you thought it was going to be a hard sell i kind of did and like the 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 thing he gave me i was just like i love this as is you don't have to do anything to it and then he was like no no i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna make him better and you know and he did he like he kept working on it he took it as seriously as the projects that were making him a lot of money. that you're talking about Madlib and Dilla they feel cut from the same cloth but that cloth in part seems like it's a bit of introversion Is they're that... both introverted for sure um, but I, I feel like you're cut from the same right uh, the introversion part sure kind of I mean I, I'm more outgoing well I, I, I feel like Dilla was more outgoing um, personality than Madlib. Madlib's a little more shy than Dilla, but I mean, get a couple drinks in Madlib. I think like, <laughs> like if he goes, if he would go to do over, you know, he would be around people and he would have a few drinks. Because I mean, I get 
nervous just going to my own shows because just i mean you you get in this industry to get the accolades but then when you receive them it's awkward and you're like what what did i get myself into and you know for every person that comes up to me at a show and says something nice about me there's like a hundred people doing that to madlib so it's really stressful what did you make of him getting sick dilla i mean dilla like the early days i didn't know he was sick at all but like even when we were working on Jaleb, like I knew he was really sick, and how do you know that? Um, through him, he told us. He would tell us like that, you know, he would have to go back to the hospital, and um. But you know, when I when when we talked about doing the now, I didn't know at the time he was like he had to take steroids, you know, to to keep his strength up and stuff, and. Um, he never complained about his sickness or, you know, like we would go like one time. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when they started working on that album, Jaleb, the two of them together, um, I had already known that that was just going to be a studio project and they wouldn't be touring because his sickness. And so I was just kind of in the back of my mind, like, well, I'm not going to pressure him to do shows, but, you know, if he does, that's just icing on the cake or whatever. And then we had some offers to do Europe and Canada and U.S., and he agreed to go with us. And I just remember he would get really sick. Like, we would be in the hotel, like, in the lobby, and he would kind of, like, black out a little bit, and he would just make these, like, painful faces, and but he wouldn't, like, tell us what was going on or what was wrong but it was it was scary for you know i remember like madlib was there with me and j-rock and we were all like just feeling like maybe we we need to go home and stuff but he you know he dylan made it through those but he would um he would be in and out of the hospital and then he would be okay for a few months and then he would go back i remember one time like he was in the hospital for several months and then he called and asked me if I could take him home. I was all excited. You know, we put his wheelchair in my car and brought him back home, and it was like a big celebration that he was out of the hospital. But um, I I guess I never really thought he was going to die from this disease that he had. I just, because my routine was seeing him get sick and then get better again. And then when we put out donuts, that's when he was really sick. And at that, the day that we put out donuts it was on his birthday and we specifically made it his birthday and we went and visited him and that that day i i felt like we were going to lose him like asap and i i pulled his mom aside and said you know you should take him to the hospital right now and she said oh i know he i, I he promised he made me promise to him that he was going to sp- spend his birthday in in his house this day and then i think she took him to the hospital the next day you know and then he died a couple of days after that. Did he talk to you about death? No, I mean I don't. I don't know if you ever saw the footage where he was in the wheelchair um, on stage and stuff. That was really um, just touching to watch. And you know, he he didn't really. I I don't know if he wanted to go on that tour, but he had made a commitment to the guys, and he wanted to help his friends out and stuff. And the guys that he went on the tour with, the, the MCs. 
and um I just remember he would he would always make jokes about everything. He's like, "Man, Wolf, you I ain't never doing no shit like that again, man. You know, you're not gonna catch me on stage in a wheelchair, you know, because it it turned into this really kind of sappy thing, and that's not that's not what he was about. What was he about? He was about being strong, and you know, just um, not not getting sympathy or anything like that. He was a tough guy. Have you had an artist like that again on the label since then? Like what? Someone who made not only great music but meant a lot to you. I mean, a lot, a lot of my artists mean a lot to me. I would say, you know, most of my best friends are are the artists that I work with. I don't know if they'll say I'm their best friend, but like, <laughs> they're like, you know, the, they're the people that I enjoy hanging out with and. Yeah. What did you make of moving forward after he died? Um, I don't. I don't think it was anything. I really just uh, that I thought about. It was just we went to the funeral. We you know had to make it through that day, and you know everybody was fighting over who was going to pay for it, and like I think Busta wanted to pay for it, and Q-Tip wanted to pay for it, and then I was the the guy on the sidelines that. His mom was saying, can you help me pick out the casket? Can you help me pick out the flowers? And that stuff, you know, that stuff was, like, really um, meaningful and touching to me that she would call on me to to be involved in, you know, such a personal thing like that. So the next day, funeral's over and you went back to work? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what I was doing the next day. No, but I mean... I don't know what I was doing the next month. I mean... The whole... You know, one one thing I do remember is when he was alive, we were really trying to promote his album, and, you know, we were trying to get interviews with magazines, and no one was interested, and then after he died, the New York Times was calling, and everyone was calling for quotes, and wanting to interview me, and interview everybody around him, and we just all said no interviews, and, and then eventually Modic said, you know, if this will help um, Dilla's legacy, let's grant interviews to everybody. Mm. And we had a record release party that was already scheduled before he died. When we didn't know how sick he was, we scheduled it months in advance in San Francisco. And he passed away, and we we were going to cancel that record release party. But you kept it. Yeah, his mom, um, she was... She was like, "Yeah, let's let's do this, and I'll I'll be on stage with you guys." And that was definitely the hardest gig I've ever done. But it, you know, it was um, it was it was a real release, like to see everybody celebrating his life like that. It was like it was really it was a, a highlight, you know, a career highlight for me. I think everyone that was involved in it.
watch like the of course he had kids as well that um needed to be taken care of you know so that that's understandable but it was just like so many people like getting involved in the money and it's just like the vulture thing it really felt that way to me yeah how do you even sort that out it was that, just kind of ugly. That, to that me. wasn't your job to do that. No, it was. T- it was ugly. Like a guy that I was working with was trying to take the estate away from his mom, and I was just like, oh, "How could you do that?" You know, I don't know. Why did what? Did, what was his rationale? I mean, it was a guy that I knew. I shouldn't say like, yeah. You know. Um, you don't have to say his name, but I mean, no, I know, you know, I know. But it was just like that kind of stuff. Like just when you think you know people, and you know, you see an ugly side to them like that. Is that what this industry creates? Um, or is that just what money creates? Yeah, I don't know. By everything you've told me in the last hour, it seems like the undertone is that some of these relationships are stronger than others, obviously. But also, it's very easy for the bottom to fall out. That seems to be the music industry in general. The bottom to fall out in a what a relationship with somebody, or, or are you just saying like external things happening kind that of, you don't kind of both? Yeah, that you can't prepare prepare for the external things you can't prepare for, but it but it also seems to be that even in the interpersonal stuff, people change, and the music and the money side of it changes them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like. Um, Drugs, like, are just, you know, a lot of people get carried away with drugs and then they change, too. I mean, I'm, like, I'm lucky that I haven't had to deal with that, I guess, personally, but... You avoided it? I mean, I guess it's just my... Yeah. I mean, uh, alcohol, I I do drink, and, you know, the the record collecting thing's a a drug, I guess, or whatever, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's under your breath <laughs> the record collecting thing huh? yeah do you think that's actually a drug I uh, I think I have an addiction with it like in terms of yeah I can't control it sometimes you like go like to buying records I don't I mean my girlfriend makes fun of, like she teases me like she's like I understand you buy so many records but you never listen to them like you're always like listening to other records trying to get them and you know instead of appreciating the records that you already have and stuff so do you have a problem appreciating things in the present oh i don't know (laughs) i feel like i i asked that not to like not again not for therapy session yeah but for the fact that it is significant that you have jump-started many careers and i have to think you have some ability to recognize in a moment that this person or this group has a sound or a thing that is good, that is interesting, that is unique. Mm-hmm. That takes some, maybe that's the ADHD that you have, the hyper-focus on music, but you have something. I mean, I think, like, I don't know, there's the stuff that I like, I mean, I, I always end up finding enough people that like it. I mean, we don't have, like, like, for example, we've never been nominated for a Grammy. Like, nothing on Stone's Throw in 21 years. You know? So, Do you want that? Um, I mean, 
I think if I did, I probably would take more steps to like sign up records for it to be in the Grammys and that that sort of thing. So it's not like some, but I mean, I think it's more to me like, yeah, that's never what we did it for. So I guess my point was just that even though we don't have like the the support of the critics or whatever, like there's still we still have like a, a solid fan base that you know has has been with us for many years. And I you know I meet I meet young kids where they're like, oh my god, I've I've followed Stone's Throw since 2009, and at first I'm like, that's only a few years, but really that's that's a long time too, you know, mm-hmm. for an 18 year old or whatever. What would you say is like the ethos of Stones Throw? Or rather, what was it in 96? It's, I mean, basically it's just to put out records that I would personally buy as a record collector, but I guess that's not very discriminatory because I buy so many records. <laughs> you so. buy every record, so, <laughs> so you'll put out anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know. Artists who are listening to this and want a new label, <laughs> I guess, come to you. Yeah. Basically, has the label mapped out the way you thought it would, or did you not think about the future? I mean, I sometimes I feel like I'm more successful than I thought I was going to be, but then I also feel like it could have been more than it is. So I don't know. I mean, I'm always. But does that stuff even matter to you? I mean, what I feel. I like... mean, it matters to me to like have to have all the artists. Um, be financially independent you know some of them are still holding jobs so that are on the label yeah maybe even well, I, was, I don't know about half but yeah I mean there's not not that many of them have made a successful career out of music yet and that's like what I have to deal with like you know at night mm-hmm. but it's not like you're profiting it's not, a bunch oh no no but i i mean it before when the label was had so much power and control it would be like it would be more of a burden on me like if if something didn't do well like these persons these people's careers are in my hands but when was that i think just like in the early 90s i mean early 90s late 90s early 2000s but now like labels are just not as important, I guess, you know. I mean, you have Chance the Rapper donated a million dollars and, you know, super successful and financially su- successful as well and no label. You have new acts that are really strong. No, they're, yeah. And that's that's what drives me to continue doing it this, you know, this late in my career, I guess. Just thinking about the people who are are doing stuff right now for you. People in their early 20s that have so much promise. Yeah, we're talking about Ringo and Mind Design, yeah. the Mild High Club folks. Gabriel Garzon, Sudan Archives, just, yeah, create, create an oddity, on and on. Um, in the last, like, five to seven years, is there an album that you guys put out that you thought, wow, that really should have made more of an impact? I, I know you you may say it all of them. That, yeah. Don't, I mean, say, don't say all of them. I know. What's one that you just think... Oh, I thought that would click. And this is not even about you thinking it's the best. It's more you thought it would hit with the with the mainstream at that time. Oh, with the mainstream, or, or not like the yeah, main, I mean, not the main, like you mean maybe, like the pitchforks or something? <laughs> I'll give you an example. Um, 
like the a man headline. Hawthorne stuff yeah. uh-huh. has an appeal that is fairly broad. Mm-hmm. Like you know, when when Mayor Hawthorne's like his the, shows, he he gets a pretty good. He gets audience. he gets turn. He just yeah. did the thing downtown like a month ago. I yeah. saw him. Yeah, but his his sound has both. It's a soul sound from the sixties. Mm-hmm. But there is a mainstream. Sure. Timberlake like sensibility. Bruno Mars. Yeah. Who we used to tour with, I guess. But um <laughs> I mean I I would like to see Mild High Club have bigger audiences. He's really good and his albums are really meaningful. Um but he's it's but that's not to say that he's his shows aren't attended though. But I, I think that he can be you know, bigger than he is so far. Alex. But he hasn't, yeah. But he hasn't given up or anything. He's like, you know, chugging away at his new album and stuff. But I don't, but that's, I don't know if that's something that he's even interested in anyways. I don't think he does that, does it for that reason. Mm. I have two things before we, that I'm thinking about. You talked about, you got into this for validation in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had artists that you love come to you and say, and people that you haven't even worked with come to you and say what you've done is great? Because I, I, I kind of already know the answer to this because J Rock told me mm-hmm. about you and Tip. Mm-hmm. He's someone you guys like record store hunting because he's a crazy person as well mm-hmm. who does that. Have you had people like him and others? come to you and say you know the work you've put out the body of work you guys have put out has meant a lot to me yeah i mean that's that happens yeah a lot more these days so i mean you know now now it's a a situation where there's younger guys that are becoming successful that they grew up on stone's throw or they grew up on you know some of the artists on stone's throw so um yeah that's that's always a good thing for me. Who's the most surprising person that has come to you, like out of the woodwork and been like, oh man, I really love that Quasimodo loop pack record? Um, I think Jonah Hill, is that the, the actor guy? He like, <laughs> he was on, <laughs> he said something on Twitter about like how he, everyone should go out and watch the Our Vinyl Weighs a Ton documentary about peanut butter wolf and stuff like that so you know there's it's it's usually like the the actor guys that you don't really realize you're on their radar but Mm. or like basketball players or you know stuff like that do you have any regrets about how you've run this place i mean i've i think i'm i'm in a good place right now with i I have like a, a solid team of people that i work with like artists and staff and stuff so I'm not really in that regret phase right now. I can't, I mean. And they made it sound like it's coming. <laughs> right no, now, no, right now I'm currently not regretting. The regrets, <laughs> the regrets were earlier, so no, I've, gotten, I've gotten through that. Well, um, not that you need my validation, <laughs> but uh, thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Special thanks this week to the great team at Stone's Throw, Angela, Jake, and many more. 
the series really does not happen without their support. For reference, we'll include a track list of all the songs you heard in this episode in our show notes. And, of course, you can listen to Wolf's music and more from Stone's Throw wherever you listen to music. Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Pandora. Where there's music, there's Stone's Throw. Finally, much love to PB for giving us the time. It was truly an honor to sit down and talk. People who need people If this is your first time bumping Talk Easy, be sure to check out past episodes with other musicians like Mind Design, Reggie Watts, Mac DeMarco, Esperanza Spaulding, Corinne Bailey Ray, and many more. You can find all those on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. Next week on the podcast, we sit down with the legendary disc jockey and beat maker, Jay Rock. He talks about the early rumblings of hip-hop and where Stone's Throw came into the mix. Here's a clip from that conversation. If you're into hip hop, you try, at least in, in when I first, when, when I got into it, you tried everything. You tried the break dancing, you tried graffiti, you tried rapping, and you tried <laughs> DJ. You did it all. Like, you, it was hip hop. So you were like, you had, you knew somebody that did graffiti. So they would, like, oh man, I'll help you out. And they would show you. And you knew someone that DJ. So they would, like, like, you know, someone that does all four elements. So you wanted to try. Those are the four elements? Yeah, so you would want to try off one of those four. I want to try breakdancing. All right. Everyone breakdances drunk, by yourself at the house. Mm -hmm. So you've done, I'm sure you've done it before. <laughs> if you enjoyed that, make sure you come back for the episode when we air it next Tuesday on the podcast. As always, you can subscribe to Talk Easy on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Our theme music this week is by Ginseng and Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, special artwork this week by Quinn Bowman. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Noor Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.